Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, here we are on the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the Sundays leading up to Advent, which this year happens to be on a Sunday, are meant to prepare us. They're meant to uh, cause us to grow in our anticipation for remembering again our dear Savior's birth, to celebrate uh, the coming and the arrival, that's what Advent means, of Jesus, and, and all that that means for us, and all that Jesus is for us. And in those those three Sundays and now the fourth Sunday of Advent, as we have prepared to, to celebrate again one week from today, uh, Jesus' birth, we've, we've been watching and growing in anticipation as God has revealed in, in a greater and an ever-expanding way His purposes in redemption. And I think it's been helpful, as I've certainly enjoyed approaching uh, the Christmas season this way, it's been helpful for me to again remember that the way God reveals Himself to us in His Word, it happens in a progressive nature. If you can kind of picture sort of an arc or an angle uh, beginning at a point and then opening up wider and wider, when you, when you open up your Bible at Genesis chapter 1, you don't know very much yet, especially if you've never read the Bible before. And, and, and what you do know is important. The first words of Scripture are, in the beginning, God. And those are certainly the first things we should know as we, as we seek to understand God through His Word. But we remember three weeks ago, we were looking in the beginning, in Genesis, when, when everything God had made was perfect and pristine and there was perfect relationship between Him and His creation, in particular those who bear His image, uh, that everything was, was shattered in terms of that perfection, in terms of that unity, and in terms of that flourishing when the man and the woman took things into their own hand and they, they gave in to the temptation from God's enemy and they sought to be uh, their, their own God in a sense. But if you recall, even at that darkest chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, we have the first promise of the gospel, the first glimpse of Christmas, as God promises that there will be a seed of the woman, a human deliverer, a redeemer who will, will yeah, his heel will be bruised, but it's only as he is crushing the serpent. God's enemy. And so now we, know, now we know a little bit more about God and His redemptive purposes. And then we moved on into Genesis, to Genesis chapter 12, and we, we saw God call one man from among the nations and promise to Abram that out of Abram, He was going to make a great and numerous nation. And He was going to plant them in a particular place. And all for the purpose that through this nation, God's redeeming purposes would be fulfilled. That seed of the woman would also be the seed of Abraham and come through the nation of the children of Abraham. And so now that, that scope of what we understand is expanding a little bit more. And then last week, we looked at the life of Moses, and we saw that God had fulfilled His promises to create a great and numerous people, the nation of Israel, but they were under bondage in Egypt. And yet God called Moses to be a sort of human deliverer, a sort of shadow of that deliverer who was to come, a, a prophet and a priest and a king all at the same time. And that even through Moses, God uh, was making more covenant promises and, and establishing through the Ten Commandments His people and constituting the nation of Israel as a nation so that that, that scope of our understanding widens out. And then now today, as we go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in what's often called the Davidic Covenant, 
we come to really what is the, the high watermark of God's revelation of his redeeming purposes in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament scripture is all leading us and pointing us toward Christmas. It's pointing us toward the birth of Jesus. Just as everything we read about in the New Testament points us back to Jesus and as a result of his life and his death and his resurrection, his redeeming work. But at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God's covenant with King David, we come to, to the high point of, the, of God's revelation of his redeeming purposes through his people. And so it is right and it is fitting that as we prepare to receive Jesus again at Christmas time, we think about this great promise, this covenant promise, this number of promises that God makes to David, but also to his people in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so I want to walk us through the passage again. And as with all Scripture, the subject of Scripture is God. Certainly we understand Scripture to know how we, who we are and how we respond to God. But God is highlighting several aspects of himself here, aspects we've seen before in Scripture, but that are especially highlighted here. His faithfulness, his sovereignty, his grace, and his glory. Notice in the first three verses, God's faithfulness is on display. Remember how we got here. We're at King David. I know we're covering lots of territory in the Bible, but just to bring us up to speed, David is the second king in Israel. Uh, God, when last we left God's people, the nation of Israel, they were, they were just being delivered from slavery. Uh, Moses was leading them. They were great and numerous. That part of the promises to Abraham had been fulfilled, uh, but they didn't have the land yet. They were not yet in the land of promise. And through Moses, God led them to the land of promise. Of course, Moses doesn't get to go in. Joshua leads them in. He leads them in battle. And they're in the land of promise for a while, but yet they're fighting these skirmishes against the, the nations around them. And the, in the time of the judges, there's this time of tumult where it said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. There was no king to lead God's people. And as you recall, in God's revealing of himself to the nation of Israel, it was clear that, that ultimately God was their king. He was their leader. And yet the people cried out for a king. They said, hey, the other nations around us, they have a king. Why can't we be like everybody else and have a king? And God graciously allows them to have a king, but he also teaches them a lesson. They choose a guy named Saul. And he is a king like the other nations in, in many senses that he doesn't, he doesn't honor God fully and the people really pay for it. And yet God in his grace, while Saul is still king, chooses this young shepherd boy, a, a man after God's own heart, a man who's fully devoted to God. Unlike, unlike Saul, who was not fully devoted to God, this man was devoted to God, a young man. And, and God says, anoint him, Samuel, he is going to be my king. It takes a long time, but eventually he becomes king. And in the chapters preceding 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, David is again anointed king and sort of has his official inauguration. And he has now taken over Jerusalem to be the capital of, of the country, of the nation of Israel. And he has, he has brought the Ark of the Covenant 
Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is God's throne, as it were. It's, it's the symbolic of God dwelling in the midst of the people. That's all been brought into Jerusalem. And God has given David victory. He's a warrior king. He's led the people in battle, but the victories really weren't his, right? Scripture makes it clear that God, Yahweh, is fighting on behalf of his people. And so we get to the beginning of chapter 7 here, and David, this is a time of peace. He is living in his own house because the Lord, Yahweh, has given him rest. It's a really important word in the Bible. Rest. Peace for God's people from their enemies. And the king says to Nathan, who is the chief prophet, this is the first time we read about Nathan in Scripture, we read more of him in David's life. He was the prophet that God was revealing himself to, to communicate to David the king. And David has, I think, a good inclination here. Nathan certainly affirms it. David said, basically, you know what? There's peace. I've built a beautiful house for myself, a beautiful palace. And yet the ark of the Lord symbolic of God's throne, is still dwelling in this kind of ratty old tent that has been in for the last 400 years, ever since God gave Moses the instruction to make the tent or the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place, symbolic of where, where heaven touches earth and God dwells in the midst of his people. And David says, it's not right. I think David's inclinations are good. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He loved and he honored God. He thought, it isn't right that I'm living in a nice new home and God's, as a sense, living in a tent. And Nathan affirms that. But what I want to, us to observe from these first three verses here is that God has been faithful to fulfill his promises. He's been faithful. It's taken a while. You know, God promised that, they would, that Abraham would be a great nation living in a specific place. And it's taken several hundred years. But we read that God fulfilled his promises. There's peace. There's rest. His people are dwelling in the land of promise. And that's good for us to remember that God is faithful to his promises, even if it takes a while. He's faithful to his promises. Verses 4 through 7 highlight God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Look at that in verses 4 through 7. David has an idea of what he wants to do. I think it's a good idea in terms of it's, his motives are to honor God. And yet God says, you don't necessarily have me figured out. And, and you don't necessarily get to call the shots. And so... God reveals himself to Nathan. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan. Uh, Nathan is told, go and tell my servant David, affirming David's position as God's servant. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Remember who I am. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God's great redemptive and, and saving event uh, in the Old Testament. And God says, over all of those hundreds of years, I've moved about with you, with my people. And, and during any of those times that I say, hey, I really feel like you're slighting me here. I really feel like you need to build me a house. And we see that as good as David's motives were to build God a house, a dwelling, a temple, 
that it's going to be God alone who decides how his purposes are, are fulfilled. It's going to be God alone who, who is free and sovereign to decide how he is going to carry out his redemptive purposes. And so we see God's sovereignty in verses 4 through 7. But we also, I think as always in Scripture, along with God's sovereignty and his power, we see God's goodness and his grace right next to that. He's not chastising David. He's just saying, David, I am free. I am free to carry out my redemptive purposes as I see fit, and in fact, to do it in a much more glorious way. Because we see God's glory and we see God's grace on display in the rest of this text. Now, verse 8, God is going to say, okay, this is, this is how it's going to happen, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, David, let me remember where you came from. You, were, you weren't even leading the sheep. You were following the sheep out in the pasture. And I made you prince. And I think it's interesting that God says, I made you prince. Because I think it's a reminder that ultimately the king of Israel is God himself. And the human king who reigns uh, in his place is, is his prince. It's his viceroy, if you would. It's his, it's his representative. David, I took you from the pasture to being a prince. And I've been with you. And I've, and I've taken care of your enemies. And now let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. God completely turns the table. This is, this is God's gracious nature, his, his propensity to, to overflow his goodness, his propensity to want to do good toward his people. David, you thought you were going to sort of do me a favor? Listen to all the things that I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make your name great. Do you hear echoes of another promise that we heard a couple of weeks ago? God's promise to Abraham, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make your name great. Like the great names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people. And I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God's promises for peace. And I will give you rest for your enemies. God says, I'm going I'm to establish a place for my sanctuary, for my dwelling, where I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. And throughout Scripture, that is the greatest thing that God can do for his people. It is, in fact, God's goal for his people, that he dwell among them. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's where, that's where all of Scripture is leading, and God promises to do that. That's his grace. But he promises to do it ultimately for his glory, and he's going to do it, God says to David, through a descendant. He's going to do it by establishing for David a house. This neat little word play that God does here. You are going to build me a physical house. David, I am going to build you a family house, a dynasty, a house. So you can think about the um, royalty in England is the, is the house of Windsor. There's going to be a house of David. There's going to be a succession of rulers, a succession of kings. In fact, there is going to be a king that I will place on the throne of David, as it were, whose reign will never end. He will be the forever king. Notice the, the promises for a king and a kingdom, beginning in verse 12. 
David, when you die, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you an offspring after you who shall come from your own body. There's that seed promise again. And so now we're looking for the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the descendant. An offspring after you, I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. So there, there's going to be a descendant of David who does build a dwelling place, a physical house for God, and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. I will be as a father to him, and he will be my son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod and with the stripes of, of men. But my steadfast love will not depart the way I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. God's plans are much glorious, much more glorious than we can imagine. God shows that to David. You wanted to build me a physical house that I could live in. I am going to build you a, a dynasty, that kind of house, and I am going to choose one of your descendants to build me a dwelling, a place for my name to dwell among my people. And so we see here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God is showing us a picture of what his kingdom is going to be. A picture of his kingdom. There's going to be a place where he will dwell and there's going to be a prince. There's going to be a monarchy to rule over it. And God promises King David an unending dynasty. That's the goal, that's the point of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God is showing us a picture of what the kingdom of look, looks like. God says, this is what my kingdom looks like. It's a, there's, there's a place where I dwell, and there's a prince. There's a prince of peace who resides over my kingdom. This has been God's goal since the beginning of creation, to establish a kingdom all the way back in the garden where his people would be dwelling in his place, under his rule, enjoying the blessing of his presence. And in the son of David, King Solomon, there is great fulfillment of the promises here in the Davidic covenant. Solomon becomes king after David, and he does build a dwelling place for God. He does build a temple a grand temple, a place of worship for all the nations. Listen to, listen to the prayer that Solomon prays at the, at the dedication of the temple. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. This is 1 Kings chapter 8. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. 
If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you, as, as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father. And Solomon goes on to say how this temple is to be a, a house of prayer for the nations, that the scope of God's grace beyond the nation of Israel. And so there's great fulfillment there of God's promises to David. Solomon has built a temple in Jerusalem, in the place that God had, had chosen, the place where his name would rest. And through Solomon and with the succeeding generations, there is a dynasty. There are 400 years of, of David's descendants sitting on the throne of Israel. There is a monarchy. There is a dynasty. And yet, though there is significant fulfillment in the dwelling place of the temple and in the dynasty of Davidic rulers, that fulfillment is only partial. Because we read in the succeeding chapters of Solomon's folly and of his sin, that he was, he was led away from the Lord uh, by the, the foreign wives and, and the gods that they worshipped that he had taken on. And in fact, because of him, the kingdom is divided. And the part Judah that, that still bears the ruler from David's line only has two kings that are considered faithful. And every other king is not considered a good or faithful king. And so eventually, the nation is taken captive, both the north and the south, they're, they're exiled, and the temple in Jerusalem are destroyed. And so there's a real crisis among the people, a covenant crisis. Without a place for God to dwell in their midst, without a, without a temple, how can we be God's people? How can God fulfill his promises to dwell among us without that temple? And without a king, without a, without a son of David sitting on the throne, how can, God, how can God rule over us? How can we be God's people? How can he fulfill his promises to bring his kingdom about? And seeing that all would be lost, if it were not for the unbreakable promises of God. Promises reflected through the prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote in Jeremiah 33, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And I shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. There will be rest. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. God's promises haven't failed. In fact, David seemed to have understood that, that even his physical descendants would not, be the, would not be the full fulfillment of this amazing covenant promise that God had made. David wrote in Psalm 110, beginning of the psalm, The Lord, God, 
said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, the apostles picked up on this in, in Acts as they were preaching the gospel. How could David say, talk about the Lord and then talk about someone else who is his Lord? There, there must be another son. There must be a greater son of David. There must yet be a forever king, an anointed one, a Messiah. And then after 400 years of silence, of God not speaking through the prophets, he begins sending angels, his messengers. And he sends his angel uh, to a young woman who is engaged to be married to a descendant of David named Joseph. And the angel says to Mary that you're going to have a son in the most amazing, miraculous way. The, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and you, will, you will conceive and you are going to have a son and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And here it is. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the promise. There it is. The forever king is going to be born of the Virgin Mary. And in the day that he was born, that night, as he's lying there in the manger, in Bethlehem, in the stable, uh, the angel armies, it says the hosts of heaven. The hosts aren't citizens of heaven. Hosts are armed warriors, and they're filling the sky, and they're announcing the birth of their warrior king, the one who will fight for the deliverance of his people. And the angel said to the shepherd, fear not, for behold, I am bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all people, global. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's Christ, which means anointed one, which means king, which means ruler. Not born in a palace, and yet we read throughout his story in the Gospels that there's no doubt that Jesus came as a king. That the one that, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time came to be God's forever king, to reign as the son of David, God's anointed, and to establish God's kingdom and to be our prince of peace. All throughout the Gospels, we read about Jesus' life. There, there are clear indications of his royalty, those announcements to the shepherds and the announcement uh, to Mary. But also when you read Matthew chapter 1, you see the royal bloodlines that Jesus is descended from David. His pedigree is there as royalty. Even when he was born, the, the, the sort of wannabe monarch King Herod uh, found his birth very disconcerting. Do you remember that? And the, the shepherds, that sometimes we call them three kings, came and worshipped him. And during Jesus' earthly ministry as well, we see, see his royalty and his kingdom. His message was to repent, 
for the kingdom of God has come. And many called him the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon us. And Peter confessed, you are the Christ. You are Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the beginning of the final week of his life. When the crowds welcomed him and they cried out, Hosanna, God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. And did you ever ever notice how Jesus liked to spend a lot of time in the temple? And did you ever notice his attitude when he was in the temple? He kind of acted like he owned the place. And he liked to teach there, for one thing, and with authority. Um, And he said that, you know what? If you tear down this temple, I'll build it up in three days. And he kind of had the run of the place. He, He turned over the merchants' tables and, and told them where they could do their business. See, Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't in the temple running the show. He, didn't, he wasn't acting as if he owned the place. He was showing us that he was the place. That everything that the temple of the Jerusalem, of everything the temple of Jerusalem did and everything that it stood for in terms of being the presence of God on earth, the place where heaven meets earth, the place where sacrifice is made for sin and redemption happens, Jesus was saying, all of that is found in me. I have come as the embodiment of God's presence here on earth, as the connection between heaven and earth. I am the fulfillment of those promises that were made to David, that there will be a place for my glory to dwell. And Jesus is saying, that place is in me because I am your true king. I am your forever king. I am the fulfillment of the promises that God made to David. And so Advent reminds us that Jesus came to be the true son of David, to reign as God's forever king. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. It means anointed one, Messiah, king. He is King Jesus. And he is King Jesus for us. I love what O. Palmer Robertson says about this Davidic covenant. He says, at the heart of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, is the Emmanuel principle the principle of God with us. In verse 7, God says, In all the places I have moved with all the people of Israel. And in verse 9, I have been with you. God's promise to establish his kingdom through his king is a means of him being with his people. And so Jesus' identity as our forever king is for us. So let's 
close this morning thinking about how is Jesus being our forever king, what does it mean for us that Jesus came as our forever king? Four things I want us to consider this morning. Jesus being for us. First of all, it means that we are not our own. It means that we belong to our king. It means that we are his subjects. We are under his authority. We answer to him. Doesn't sound very American, does it? Because it isn't. Jesus' kingdom isn't a democracy. It's a monarchy. And we don't call the shots. And so our attitude ought to be complete humility before God, trembling at his word. But that puts us in the best possible position to receive God's favor and God's grace if we recognize Christ's royal authority. If we enter into his kingdom, because in order for someone to be your king, the way someone is your king is you are born into his kingdom. However, listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 says about all of humanity and the kingdom that we are naturally, by nature, in. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this air, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, our natural setting, that the kingdom in which we are born into is the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air, which means we are naturally dead in our trespasses and sins. And it means we need a king who will rescue us. We need a king who will fight for us and rescue us so that we can be reborn into his kingdom. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus is for us as our king. The second way that Jesus is for us as our king, and that is that he fought to the death to win our peace. At the cross, the highest-ranking monarch in the universe suffered the lowest humiliation that was reserved for only pretender kings. And at the cross, God's warrior king achieved the greatest victory by giving up his life. And at the cross, peace with God for God's enemies was accomplished by the violence that God ordained toward his royal son. Jesus is a king who won his great victory over sin and over death and over Satan at the cross by giving up his life in our place, paying for our sins. In 2 Samuel 7, God said, I am going to discipline my forever king. Well, Jesus was disciplined not for, not for our sins, 
Not for his sin, but for our sins. But God declared the victory of his son by raising him from the dead. That was God's stamp of approval. You have won. You have been victorious. You have paid in full for all the sins of your people. And God ascended him into heaven. His victory march, his parade, the scripture said, with captives in his train. And God placed him in the seat of honor at the throne at his very right hand where he sits and where one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus has come and he has fought and gained a victory for all who look to him. The Apostle Paul writes this, writing of Christmas. The Apostle Paul is writing of the incarnation. That Jesus emptied himself, he set aside his glory. He took on the form of a servant being born in like the likeness of men. That is the incarnation, that's Christmas. And being found truly in human form, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, King Jesus, the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sounds like a king, highly exalted. Every knee shall bow. And the most important question for everyone in this room is, Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you recognized your own propensity to to, to want to wear the crown and want to run the show? And have you recognized that Jesus is the greater king? He is God's forever king. And that at the cross, Jesus won the great victory by receiving the penalty for human sin in his body, in his flesh, born at Christmas time. And that through his resurrection, you can have eternal life if you take off that fake crown, turn from your sin, repent of it, bow your knee, bend your knee to King Jesus and look to him as your Savior. If you have entered into Jesus' kingdom by repentance and faith, then you can enjoy the benefits of citizenship in his kingdom right now. So Jesus is for us as our forever king. We have the benefits of citizenship today. You know, it's not like we probably all have some of these rewards cards, whether it's for your gas or your airline miles or um, hotels or whatever. And when you get those cards, it's always so disappointing because you want to be like platinum premium plus and you start out at the tinfoil level, right? You have nothing. You have no benefits. You don't get anything. You, You have to build up points. You have to earn points. You have to attain a certain status to be gold or platinum or premium. 
Well, with King Jesus, you don't have to wait. As his, as his subject, having come into his kingdom through repentance and faith, you have premier status today. Head of the line, free upgrades. You've been adopted as part of his royal family. You are now royalty. You're related to, to King Jesus, our forever king. And you have peace with God. No longer God's enemies, but God's friend through the Prince of Peace. And you have the confidence. Confidence that your king has already taken care of the greatest need that any human being can have. That is to have their, their sins forgiven and to know reconciliation to the Father. It doesn't mean that the war is over. It's sort of like being a, a, a prisoner of war who has been set free um, and, and brought on, onto a battleship. You're riding in the battleship. You're in a safe place, but you hear, you hear the bombs and you hear the war going on around you, and yet you know you're safe. You have confidence. And we have confidence in our King that though our circumstances are difficult, that he is taking care of our greatest need. And finally, because Jesus is our forever king, we look forward to our king's perfect eternal reign. Jesus' victory at the cross was the decisive victory. And we know in the span of history, there are many wars where there's a decisive victory. It's clear what the outcome is going to be, but then the war goes on several years after that. But it does end. And at Christmas time, we remember that Jesus came as our king, that he fought the decisive victory at the cross, and that he is going to return. And that though the wrong does seem off so strong, Christ is the ruler yet. And so we, we look forward to Jesus' second advent, and we eagerly await our king. As Matt read earlier, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, all rule shall be upon his shoulders, the shoulders of our eternal king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince, Ruler of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And our God will accomplish this. Amen. God, we marvel that your ways are higher than our ways and that you accomplish your purposes in a way that, that we, we would not dream of or imagine. And that you have done that through sending Jesus to be our uh, forever king. Lord, we confess that we need a king. That left to rule our own lives, we make a huge mess of things. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know the peace and the joy, and the hope, and the confidence 
of having become one of Jesus' people, having become one of the subjects of the true King. And I pray that you would grant repentance and faith to any in this room who does not have that gift. That they would turn from their sin and embrace King Jesus. The one who we have longed for and the one who is our great hope. We pray in his name. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.